But Gabe and Karen are left in this morass of they they liken it more than once in this play to a death. It's kind of like Tom died is one thing that Karen says at one point. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. We got a brand new playwright as far as this podcast is concerned for you all today. That's right. We're doing a great play, a play Jackson and I both love a lot, a play by, like Jackson said, by a brand new playwright to the podcast. Donald Margulies' play Dinner with Friends is the subject of our conversation today. Dinner with Friends. It is a powerhouse play, just a really awesome zoomed in look at four characters' lives. I'm so excited to get to talk about it. And also because it references some of my own experience as well. I got to be in this play uh, not too long ago, actually, with some friends at my home theater. So so it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, it's always great to do shows that we've done in various capacities. Both Jackson and I are directors and actors. So to look at plays from different lenses, well, I directed this show, I was in this show, we were in this show together, is always one of the one of the great parts of the podcast and a great part of being a practicing theater artist that we, you know, Jackson and I both still do shows. And so it's, right, it's great right. to just build that uh, wealth of stories. So I'm excited to hear what doing this show is like for you. Yes, yes. But before we jump into some of the stories from the production and as well as grappling with the dramatic themes, I do want to take just a second and point you all over towards our Patreon page. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show know that we love doing this show. It is a labor of love for us. We love talking to each other about plays. We love talking to all of you about plays on all the social media platforms. Alas, this labor of love is not free. There are a couple of fees associated with the podcast, uh, as well as the cost of uh, buying any of the plays that we can't find in our local libraries. So, if you have been a longtime listener of the show, you've commented on posts, you've listened to the podcast, and you want to find a way to help support the show and ensure that we can continue having these unscripted conversations, check us out over on patreon.com slash podcast. When you get there, you'll find that we have a number of different tiers for as low as like $1. You can uh, help out the show, and that $1 amount helps us immeasurably. Um, to to support these fees and, and just keep this podcast going. So if you're looking for a way to be a patron of this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there. That's right. Thank you to everybody who's already become a patron. We appreciate your support. And for those of you who haven't, I hope that you feel like you're getting a dollar a month's worth of return on your time spent with us. Please head over there and support our show. The other thing we want to tell you before we start talking about Dinner with Friends is, as we've been teasing, we are just weeks away from our season three themed month. Every season we do a month of plays centered around something specific. And it's been pretty widely varied so far. We did Musical Month, where we looked at four specific types of scripts. Then we did Miller Month, where we looked at four plays by a powerhouse American playwright. For season three, we're going to do four plays that all involve an element of playwriting or an element of storytelling, and that is magic. So we're going to be doing Magic Month, four plays that involve magic in the storytelling somehow. 
Yeah, and we wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what those plays are. So if you want to read ahead and, uh, you know, have the full context of the play that we're talking about, we wanted to give those to you. So the first one is going to be A Midsummer's Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. Of course, a very magical play. Uh, we're also doing Prelude to a Kiss by Craig Lucas. Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim and Angels in America by Tony Kushner. So if you want to go ahead and get ahead of things, buy the scripts or rent them from the library, be sure they're aside or or watch productions of them. Some of them you can watch. So, uh, so yeah, uh, we wanted to give you a heads up so that you can join in on the conversation when those episodes come out. So that will be the month of October is when we're going to be doing this magic month. So during October, we'll be looking at four scripts with magic. It'll be interesting to see the interplay between the scripts, how magic is used and and differentiated between the scripts. We're really excited. And that suggestion for the theme month did come from one of our audience members. So that's always exciting, too, is to incorporate what we know the listeners are wanting to hear from us into what we do. So we're excited about Magic Month. That is next month, October. Looking forward to that. Now, back to the script. Dinner with Friends is one of those scripts from the Humana Festival. So if you've listened, we have done a couple of plays that premiered at the Humana Festival. This one was in 1998. It premiered at the Humana Festival. It was the year 2000 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Again, uh, Dinner with Friends is an incredible small cast show. So as you can imagine, it had a couple of of, uh, productions back then in the 90s. And then it, it... played in community theaters and regional theaters across the country for a while, but there was no major revival until 2014 when it was produced off-Broadway again by the Roundabout Theater Company. And uh, that production actually received kind of mixed reviews, which is interesting for such a great script. Some people felt like the scripts, uh, you know, the way it looked at couples and friendships maybe didn't hold up as much across those 15 years. So that'll be interesting to talk about Jackson having done it so recently, what he felt. So that's kind of the scope of the context. It's not an incredibly prolific play other than winning the 2000, uh, the year 2000 Pulitzer Prize, but 1998 premiere, 2014 revival. And, of course, there was a, a movie as well, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 2001, HBO did a TV movie of the script, uh, and uh, Margulies was the playwright or the, the screenwriter for that particular adaption of it. Uh, notably, I think the most notable performer, and that was Dennis Quaid, who played the character of Gabe in that movie adaption. Yeah, yeah. So so it is it has been around a little bit, but kind of flying on the, under the radar sometimes. But I'm I'm so excited we're getting to talk about it cuz it's such a beautiful little compact play. Uh the I'm just going to real quick summarize it for you. I'm just going to do the whole thing pretty much. And uh, it's from start to finish it's really just uh Gonna get the number of scenes right for you, cause uh, again, it's it's not too long. I think there's like seven scenes over the course of two acts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yes, seven scenes over the course of two acts. And uh, the first act is there are four characters that you'll need to know about. There's Gabe and Karen who are married, and Beth and Tom. So those two who are also married, those two make up the two couples of this play. In the opening scene, Gabe and Karen have Beth over to dinner, and they're recounting uh, their travels. Uh, They've been in Italy recently, so it's kind of a great scene. Um, But in that 
that uh, dinner scene, it comes out that Beth and Tom are going through a divorce, that Tom had cheated on Beth, not going through a divorce, moving toward a divorce. And uh, Tom had cheated on Beth with, uh, she says, a stewardess. And uh, and yeah, the news comes out to this friend group that Tom uh, has, is cheating on her. And the and context notably, is... Tom isn't at the dinner. Uh, it's a dinner that was supposed to be all four of them getting together, but Tom has, for reasons we learn later, uh, but just claimed an excuse. You know, Tom has to go to D.C. for work, quote unquote, is what Beth says. And then she reveals, Tom's leaving me. Um, and and the way that she reveals it and the choices she makes end up getting kind of questioned by Tom as the play moves on. Right, right. And 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 the context of it is these are 12-year-old friendships. These these two couples have been together for a long time. That comes out after in this first scene is that there's quite a bit of history between well, yeah, these the, two. Well, the, yeah, as a as couples they've been friends for 12 years because that's how long Beth and Tom have been married. But the friendships themselves go on past that. I think we learned that Gabe and Tom have been friends since you know, they make a whole big deal about it being like since the first day of college, since like right. freshman or presentation day one. Yeah, and like the dinner line or something, they both make fun of the food. So yeah, these these friendships have gone on for quite a long time. So it's it's understandably pretty seismic when when this news hits the group. Um, throughout the course of the first act, we then see uh, Tom. Uh, the The group separates. Beth goes home. Tom comes home to Beth at their house, and news gets out that she told the couple what happened, and then he goes at the end of the act back to Gabe and Karen. Tom and Gabe and Karen have a scene, and then we time jump. <laughs> we time jump and we see a bit of their past history, what went on when uh, they when Tom and Beth were first introduced, introduced, and then we see a bit of the aftermath as well through the end of the play. We have a couple more conversations between Beth and Karen and Gabe and Tom in two separate scenes and we get to see the aftermath of what happens to this this these two couples uh, in in the wake of Tom's uh, affair and also some kind of revealing information about uh Beth and Tom's marriage over the years. It is interesting and I think we perhaps learn the reason why later in the script. But I found for the first part of the play, it is interesting because in your description of the play, you describe the main thing that has happened is that Tom has had an affair. But I'm not really sure that any of the characters make much mention of the fact that he's had an affair at all. Beth's uh, sorrow is that he's leaving her. He's divorced. They are divorcing is really the core pain of the play is this divorce, this separation, this ending of the relationship. And, you know, the fact that Tom has been sleeping with this quote unquote stewardess, she's actually a travel agent, but Beth calls her a stewardess as kind of a jab several times. This quote unquote stewardess, the fact that Tom's been sleeping with her while married to Beth, that doesn't, it's, it's, it's sort of oddly is avoided as a, a main accusation against Tom. Yeah, it doesn't have the same amount of weight as the divorce does, especially from Gabe. I think I would argue Karen, I think, seems to react more strongly to the idea that this whole time as they've been hanging out, he's been cheating on Beth and had this kind of secret life that he wasn't talking about and secret needs that he wasn't talking about. I'll, I'll give you an example. Gabe and Tom, in the scene where Tom comes to justify himself, so scene one of act one is where Beth reveals that they're getting divorced. Scene two is a scene between Beth and Tom 
Tom where Beth reveals that she told them, which she wasn't supposed to do. Scene three is where Tom goes to see Karen and Gabe to try to justify his decision. In that scene, Tom and Gabe are talking, and Gabe says something like, don't you want to think about it and get some counseling before you do anything irreversible? And in my mind, <laughs> yeah. every time I read that, I'm like... Hasn't he already done something kind of irreversible? <laughs> yeah, it's he's had an affair, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely that scene where he's like he's asking him, "Do you want to, you know, just maybe this is just a midlife crisis? What if you can still salvage something from this?" And 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 it seems like Tom has moved on, but also to some degree, the other characters move on very quickly from from that center. Uh, issue of him cheating on her. Right, and and I think we learn why as we go on. One of the reasons why Kate, Gabe and Karen can move past it is some sort of self-centeredness. The fact that they're, that Beth and Tom are going to separate has some repercussions for Karen and, Karen and Gabe's life, like their life as friends, the things they've enjoyed doing, going to the vineyard, etc. The reason why Beth doesn't make a big point about that, right? Because she doesn't say when she starts crying, Tom's been cheating on me. It's Tom's leaving me. And I think later in the play, we learn something kind of interesting. It's not a twist, really. It's not given the weight of being any kind of a plot twist. But we do learn later in the play, I think, it's not so explicitly said out loud, but I think we learn that Beth had an affair of her own early in the marriage. Yeah, I agree. Late late in the play, second to last scene of the play, we discover, well, uh, third to last scene of the play, we discover that Beth very quickly has started a relationship with another person. Um, David is the name of the other character. We never meet him in the play, but uh, Beth is having a conversation with Karen, and she introduces the fact that for the last couple months, she's been seeing this person called David fairly quickly after the whole divorce had finalized, and uh, that they are suddenly getting married as well. So it's... It's a very quick transition for Karen. And she and says, Beth. like, oh, David was a friend of Tom's from work. He went out socially a few times. We, we just kind of knew each other at one point. Um, but then she also says things like, there was a shared language. There was a shared experience we already had before Tom and I split up and I, and I started seeing him romantically. So those two versions of the story don't quite line up. You don't, like, have a shared language in history with someone you've just who's just a friend of your husband from work. Right, right. That that weight is not typically assigned to it. And then in the next scene, we get a little bit of clues from Tom that uh, in, 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 we'll talk about subjectivity in a minute, but in a way that seems like he doesn't have a reason to lie, he says, oh, they had a thing like 10 years ago. And, and you know, I got to hand it to him. He really stuck in there and waited for his moment for, for when he could, you know, be with Beth again. So he kind of offhandedly says that, assuming that Gabe has been told this already. And then the next scene we see Gabe and Karen kind of grapple with, did she have an affair 10 years ago with this guy called David? And if so, like, do we even know these people? <laughs> right. And as an audience, do we even know these people? Because right. I got to tell you, Tom comes off as a jerk. I don't mm-hmm. I don't find him to have much 
rede- many redeeming qualities through the whole of the script, even into his final scene with Gabe, which I think is supposed to kind of help us understand what he's done and the changes that he's made in his life and, and why it's been for the better and all this stuff. I don't find that Tom has much justification for what he does, and uh, I, I find him to come off pretty badly, but then you learn that he's stayed married to someone who cheated on him within the first couple years of them being married. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a rough character for an actor to portray. And I speak from experience on this one because I played Tom. You did? I wondered. <laughs> we, we actually haven't talked about this much before we started recording. And so I, yeah. I, I waited to ask that question. I was interested to know. So you played Tom. Yeah, yeah. And he's, I mean, the, the, he does not come off well in this, in this script. There's multiple moments where He's just he's kind of a jerk. Um, but there are a couple there, there there are these moments where like like where you see the situation of, well, he was kind of cheated on two years into their marriage. That must have been hard. Doesn't change how bad the things he did are, but that must have been hard. There's also a couple lines that you have to choose how you want to play as Tom. Um, and 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 one of those lines it comes at the end of scene three, where he's kind of confessing to Gabe or talking to Gabe about about the state of things. And and it's all kind of blown up. Gabe gets a little judgmental or at least tries to help too much for Tom and uh, and they they kind of come to a head and Tom just tells him he just needs you to listen to him and Gabe shuts up Tom says I hope you never know how alone this feels I, I hope you never feel this alone and how you choose to play that line might be the one beat of sympathy for Tom in this play and and whether well, he's I, telling the truth in that I, I think what Tom does over the course of the play is tries to justify this case of, I mean, what do you do if you're not happy in a marriage? Because, right. uh, you know, from the from the very first look we get of Beth saying, Tom's leaving me, he's been sleeping with a stewardess, he says he never loved me, that he's been so unhappy, he comes off really badly. Then scene for scene after that, Tom tries to build this case of, it wasn't just that I'm some jerk that decided to leave my wife and kids, although that is still how some of the characters view what he did. He, I think that he, uh, I, I believe he earnestly tries to make this case of, look, I was not happy. I did not feel supported by my partner. I did not feel that, uh, you know, we were on equal footing. I did not feel like she was the kind of partner I really wanted. And I was dying. You know, he says, I was dying. I couldn't, that I was unhappy in this marriage. And should I have gone on? At one point, Gabe says, um, you know, like, oh, well, all marriage, you know, there's unhappiness in all marriages. He actually says it cruder than that, I think. But yeah. the, <laughs> then what the point that Tom makes is, well, you're right. Well, my parents stuck through it. Your parents stuck through it. For 50 years, they were only so happy because the partners they chose in their youth weren't the right partners for them. Should they have stuck it out for all those years in their unhappiness? And that's, that's the question that the character of Tom asks is, look, I was not happy in that marriage am i supposed do i have some responsibility to stay in it despite all of that yeah that's the question of this play gabe gabe kind of serves in that argument as a weak counterpoint to tom tom is this kind of 
almost like vapid explainer at that point. <laughs> like exp- he explains how great his life is now that he's with Nancy, who is the the travel agent that he cheated on Beth with. And Gabe is like trying to take this stance of like society can only exist if we just, you know, occasionally weather the rough spots of marriage and 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 still like stick it out to the end of it. And and Tom's kind of um yeah, very, very uh, confident argument, if not strong argument, is that how can we live that way if and, and still like and still make it into like later life? How do we not die young if that level of despair is there? Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned too that Tom has this kind of running complaint of I'm not being heard. He makes the complaint against Beth. Beth actually first brings it up and says, he says I wasn't listening to him, that I didn't catch the signs. And then in the scene that Beth and Tom have together, uh, that their big fight, he says over and over, you're not hearing me, you're not hearing me. And that's an interesting complaint, right? I mean, lots of spouses have that struggle. How can I really be heard in my marriage in a way that's meaningful? But then, for me, Tom ruins that argument <laughs> in scene three of act one. He and Gabe are talking for a little while, and eventually they start to fight a little bit, and Tom's main complaint is, you're not hearing me. But this is the this is what Gabe says that tees off Tom's complaint that you're not hearing me. Gabe says, how can you walk away, Tom? How can you throw up your hands and walk away. 12 years, don't you think you owe it for your kids? And then they start to fight back and forth and it eventually ends with Tom saying, I don't want your advice. I don't want to know what you think. I just want you to hear me. Is that asking too much? I don't know, man. (laughs) You come to your best friend to say, I'm leaving my wife. And they say, how can you throw it away after 12 years? And you say, you're not hearing me. Just hear me. It it sort of feels at that point, I start to wonder, is Tom's complaint about not being heard really a complaint about just not having anybody accept what he says unequivocally? Yeah. (laughs) And you get a little bit of a hint that that is his character as well. The kind of unique thing about the first scene of Act 2 is it's a flashback scene. You get to go go back mm, 12 to 15 years, let's say, um, into the past and see these characters when they were much younger and see what themes are still true of them back then, which is kind of a unique way to deal with deal with uh corroborating evidence about the character of these characters because you you see how they comported before all of these events as well yeah it's a very interesting it's a very interesting moment to walk away from the current moment of the story all of act one is this you know it's this all takes place on the same night actually And then act one ends with Tom making his case to Gabe and then Karen and Gabe have just a short reflection on what Tom says after he leaves. End of act one. Act two starts with this scene from 12 years ago. The scene, in fact, where Tom and Beth met. Now, if you know and love the play, that's not actually true. They met a while before that at a wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) For all intents and purposes, this is where the relationship begins, where they meet to start being together. Yeah, it, it, it's so interesting to me to move away. You, you know, we don't we don't return back into the timeline of the story, and in fact, we don't really for the rest of Act Two because even the final couple scenes of Act Two are are many weeks later, 
a while has happened since the events of Act One. What, what do you see about that, Jackson? This time jump back in time to start Act Two is the, is the, what's the purpose of it? What does it lend us in the storytelling? I think it does two things. It grants us the distance to do a time hop in theater because because uh, as you said, the you know scenes two through four of Act Two are weeks later. And it lets us take the time uh, as an audience to watch something different but still relevant that that and then have time progress when we come back. And it feels like we've been away for a while. So that's kind of that's kind of a cool feature of having the flashback there. But I think, again, it also secondarily gives you a chance to see what themes of these character run true over the course of 15 years. And you get to corroborate a bit of evidence between the two times as to what who these people are in a fairly short play. We don't get too much time to develop a full picture of these characters. So the the flashing back to when they were younger um, ac- accomplishes a broader spectrum of the characteristics of these folks. Well, it's interesting, too, that this is the only scene, this Act 2, Scene 1 flashback scene, it's the only scene in the whole play where we get all four characters together. This is the only moment where we see this group of friends, the friends that are having dinner in Dinner with Friends. These mm-hmm. are the friends. This is the only scene that they're together. And it, that's very interesting to me that we don't get to see what this relationship actually is in the present day ever. Through the whole play, we don't get to see what the dynamics of this friendship are between all four of them at any time, other than just what they say about it. But we do get to see where this foursome came together, where it began, who they were then. And in some ways, I think it, it serves as um it serves as a platter of of sacrificial lamb. Like <laughs> this is this is this beautiful, wonderful friendship that is being ripped apart twelve years later. It right. serves as a way to sort of help us understand what's actually being lost. Mm-hmm. Without without the option could have been to show a moment before at the start of this play, like the group of friends all hanging out. And then two months later, the breakup happens. What this does is it jumps you right into the moment right away. You pick up the play in conflict and that's, that's exciting to, to, to happen, especially in kind of a goofy first scene um, where they're talking about their trip and showing pictures and stuff like that and talking about food and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, Oh my goodness, we're right in the middle of, of a breakup. Um, but then I, I completely agree that you get to see you get to see the uh, what once was of this couple sufficiently removed from the the realities of the hurt that each other has caused. You get to see why it was worth it to hang in there for all that time, and you get to see what everybody's going to be missing. You know, Karen and Gabe. I think one of the things that they really lose over the course of the play is this these core relationships that they've had for all these years. One of the things that happens during the play is you watch Karen and Gabe lose that and, and what it's like to grieve the loss of these relationships. But in, within the structure of the play, you're right, unless we added um, you know, uh, an established the world scene at the beginning of the play where we get to see the four friends together, we don't get much of a sense of what the relationships are that are being lost unless we flash back. 
Yeah, and I I think you're I think you're right on with the I think Gabe and Karen, with the exception of perhaps Beth and Tom's kids, Beth uh, Gabe and Karen lose the most in this play. Like that uh, eventually. Beth finds David again and her life kind of corrects. She talks about how this this moment has kind of created some good things for her. She's no longer uh, kind of enslaved, as she puts it, to her art. Um, she's an artist. She paints. She likes to produce things. And now she's like got a new lease on life kind of feeling. Both Beth and Tom end in this new le- lease on life uh, headspace by the end of the play. But Gabe and Karen are left in this morass of they they liken it more than once in this play to a death. It's kind of like Tom died is one thing that Karen says at one point. And and that that mess, that brokenness, it's like that, that's all Gabe and Karen's to carry within the context of this play. You know, it's interesting. Uh, um, I was recently listening to the discussion that we had on Lost in Yonkers. And one of the things we talked about in Lost in Yonkers is that Lost in Yonkers is a play where you kind of have to figure out who the play is actually about. It initially seems to be about the young boys, and then you later on realize it's actually about the aunt and the grandma's relationship. I kind of have a similar feeling with Dinner with Friends. Because Beth and Tom are the impetus, they sort of drive the plot. You, I think you, you the experience of the play is thinking this is a play about Beth and Tom and, and a marriage ending, and then by the end of the play, I think perspective has shifted a little bit, and you start to say this might actually be a play about what it's like to have friends that divorce and to lose those relationships. And as a bolster for that, the fact that the 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 flashback scene, you know, to establish what is being lost is all four of them together, the beginning of a friendship. I think that backs that up because the flashback scene could have been, you know, Beth and Tom's first date on their own, right? If the play was about losing the marriage, the flashback scene should have established the marriage more and the beauty of their marriage more. Instead, the flashback scene establishes the friendship as something viable and powerful. And honestly, it doesn't seem like Beth and Tom care that much about losing the friendship. Yeah. I mean, that sounds kind of cruel, but honestly, they're kind of cruel people as the play goes on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To the point that I mean, Beth uh, airs some of her grievances with Karen. You get the sense that uh, Gabe and Karen, in the eyes of Beth and Tom, have kind of been this holier than thou couple in their eyes. And that that's 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 an interesting dynamic to get thrown in there because there's we we there's there's so much subjectivity in this play there's so much point of view in this play that's the other kind of big theme that kind of boils under the surface is my perception of how this is happening is suddenly wrong and i don't know who I am anymore because all of a sudden all my information is wrong karen thinks that she is great friends with beth but it turns out Three scenes from the end of the play that Beth has been harboring a lot of resentment towards Karen over all the years of their friendship. I love what you just said. The question of who I am is a question that Karen and Gabe are forced to ask themselves because of an experience their friends are having. And so one of the things that we see develop is this theme of 
how much of who we are and the relationships that we hold, our marriages, our families, is built on the friendships and families that we have outside of that core unit. When Tom and Beth fall apart and their lives change and Tom is all of a sudden in this great new relationship and has a revigorated view on life, when Beth is no longer an artist and seems to suggest that maybe Karen isn't as good a friend as she's always thought, when that kind of stuff happens around you, it forces you to look inward just as much as it forces you to look outward. Yeah, and it makes you makes you doubt things. That the last scene of this play is really kind of really heartbreaking and beautiful and and just just uh tender and messy all at the same time. Um because it's this last scene with Gabe and Karen in their bedroom and they're both reeling from their conversations with Beth and Tom and they're they're looking at their interactions, the interactions that are happening in the moment, in in not not like referring back to past actions. It's like they're sitting in in bed reading books together, and they're kind of beginning to note that, you know, the the, the kind of the fear that are we boring? Are we are we not what we were when we were young? Like that that begins to crop up with all this new information that they had, the fear that they've become something that they didn't want to be is a direct result of their friends finding someone new to be. The bedroom scene is so interesting because there is a bedroom scene in both acts. In fact, the only two scenes of the play that wouldn't be classified as dinner scenes in in in, in the sense that they involve characters eating together are these two scenes in the two bedrooms of the two couples. So in Act 1, we get Beth and Tom, and they have a scene in their, what was their shared bedroom. They no longer sleep together in the same bedroom anymore. They're, they're divorcing. Um, but, but Tom comes home after a harrowing traveling experience, and they have this scene in Act 1 that, you know, kind of defines Act 1 in a lot of ways. And then, at the, as the final scene of the play, we get Karen and Gabe in their bedroom. And for a play called Dinner with Friends, having these two non-dinner scenes, one from each couple, one in each act, is a core structural element. I'm curious, Jackson, what what do you think that that does for the play to weight these two acts in these non-dinner scenes? Mm-hmm. I think I think what it does is it adds weight to a couple of lines in the play that make those lines more themes in the play. And and the the one that the one especially that pops to my mind is is Gabe's line about how strange it is to not uh, know what couples are like when you're not in the room with them. That there's no way to know this kind of secret life that couples have when you're not hanging out with them. You know what happens when you're apart. And these two bedroom scenes serve for the audience to be included in those moments in kind of a an, uh, uh, supernatural almost moment. We get to do the thing that Gabe is saying humans can never do. Uh, we get to see the interior of these couples' lives and what happens when they're alone together. And 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 that right, is right, right. A number of times throughout the play, characters lament the fact that they can't know what it's like when other couples are alone together. What's really going on in their relationship? So I think that is an interesting point. That as the audience, we have the uh, you know the omnipotent the omnipotence to do that. Yeah, omnipotence. Yeah. I don't know why I pronounced that so weird. <laughs> omnipotence. 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 <laughs> We're so potent. We're <laughs> omnipotent. <laughs> <laughs> we have the omnipotence to do that. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah we get to check in with these these 
two couples, um, and and we get to see a little bit of the truth because again, we're especially when it comes to Tom and Beth and the realities of their relationship. We and Gabe and Karen get very subjective views uh, throughout the play. So we really just have that one scene where they're arguing to determine the state of their relationship when it ended. Yeah, and yeah it's, it, it's, 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 it's very interesting that these two scenes are, I think, exactly what you suggest. They are the only scenes, these private moments where these couples are alone together. Through the whole play, these are the only two scenes where the couples themselves are alone together. That's not quite true. Tom, I'm sorry, uh, Gabe and Karen have some short snippets where they're alone before Tom shows up uh, in both the final scene of Act 1 and the first scene of Act 2. But but not in the same way. They're waiting for someone to show up. Someone is showing up. So it's not the same as when they have extended periods of time to reflect as couples alone together. These are are the scenes in which they get to do that. And I love that you, you talked about how they, they sort of highlight some specific things that they say. Here's one thing that I think is, is really highlighted by the Tom and Beth scene when they get to finally be alone together. This is the near the very end of their scene. They've been fighting back and forth, this discussion about the fact that Beth has uh, a, a kind of stolen Karen and Gabe from Tom by being the one to tell them. They've, that fight has evolved into, you know, what you could imagine is the ongoing fight of this whole divorce. <laughs> you never supported me. You never heard me. Blah, 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 blah. Eventually, it starts to get ugly, and it, it, it turns to the fact that maybe Tom never supported her in her art, and maybe he never thought she was that good. It turns into a physical confrontation. They're slapping, they're wrestling, and finally, near the very end of that, Tom says, look at me. Look at what you've done to me. And Beth says, look at what you've done to me. And I think that becomes a crucial line for that relationship and the reflection on that relationship, the sense of, look at what you've done to me. But then the other person can also say, look at what you've done to me. And really, all the characters could say that about each other. Any one of these four could look at someone else in this foursome and say, look at what you've done to me as the course of all this. Yeah, yeah, the the friendships are that close together that they can affect each other that way. I mean, I don't think Gabe would have necessarily wanted to be put in the position of defending the hard line of like, yeah, domesticity is awesome. He's like a, he's a chef kind of character. He wants to like live life as as kind of uh, experientially as possible, but here he is because Tom is is leaving not just Beth but also him. Tom is leaving their relationship. Um, he, he's forced to defend this other point of view. I don't think Karen necessarily wants to be the person who is is uh, kind of <laughs> policing Beth and trying to be like, you should really take some time to yourself a little bit before you get married again. But because of Beth's choices, because of the way that she is handling the breakup, she is put in that position. So I, I think you're absolutely right. They can they can all point fingers at each other at, for the reason for the reasoning for why they are where they are. I I think it's so fascinating and, and what you just said prompted this is that Karen and Gabe are international food writers. Yeah. They're kind of 
uh, uh, hippie is not the right word, but they're kind of free-spirited folk. Um, you know, they spend the first part of, of a couple of these scenes just describing all this incredible food in this kind of very visceral, writerly way. And Tom is a lawyer who supports a, a, a non-working artist wife. And you know, of those two couples, they're, they're the stereotype in the world would be that these international food writers who travel around and travel out to Italy to meet this 85-year-old cook who takes them to markets, they would be the ones who would be more inclined not to settle down and to have a hard time adjusting to this rhythm of, and routine of life. And the rhythm, and make no mistake, the rhythm and routine of life becomes the the question of the play, the examination of the play. And you'd think stereotypically Tom and Beth would be the ones who would then sort of justify domesticity. And yet, one of the things that Donald Margulis does so well, and, and people comment about this skill of his as a playwright, he takes stereotypical or what could become stereotyping situations and infuses a layer of subtlety and a layer of flipping things on their head that makes it so interesting. He makes the international food writers the defenders of domesticity. Yeah. yeah. And and the 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 subtlety doesn't stop there with it's there's there's another switch as well. When you think that you just can hate Tom by the end of the play, you get the extra information that Beth also had an affair further back. So you you, you each time that you think you know where this is going or or what person to not like or what person to take aside with it gets flipped as more information comes out. And, and these characters, as well as the audience, but these characters are forced to constantly uh, be playing catch-up, especially Gabe and Karen. They're forced to play catch-up throughout this play as they get more and more information about what, what has happened. There is one moment of this subtlety, extra information barrage that we get through the course of the play that I find sort of odd, and I'm never sure how to place it in the lives of these four people. It is in Act 2, Scene 1. This is the flashback scene. Um, in this flashback scene, they're at Martha's Vineyard, which is Karen and Gabe's like vacation home in Martha's Vineyard. Karen and Gabe have invited Tom and invited Beth to come and basically uh, they're setting them up. And uh, we know, we, we have the dramatic irony to know what's going to happen between those two, which makes the scene all the more joyful. But there's this odd moment when Tom, who is the future relationship with Beth, and Karen, who even in this scene is already married to Gabe, are alone together in the kitchen. And Tom is instructed to kind of touch Karen's face and comment on how she's getting sun and kind of how good she looks. And Karen, she, she's uncomfortable with it. But not in like the, what are you doing touching me in the face? We don't have that in our whatever. It feels more familiar than that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah, that, that scene is a, is, a, is a pretty telling scene in what could be a fairly ambiguous play. Um, if, if that scene didn't exist in there, you could almost, almost believe Tom's argument by the end of the play that he was just in such a miserable place and he had to get out of it. It wasn't healthy and it's a selfish choice, but it's a choice that he had to make. Um, that scene shows 
shows something I think in Tom that is really uh, uh, insidious. Um, that 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 even even at that time he was kind of looking around at women that were very close to his friends and and that that sh- he shouldn't have that he shouldn't have been looking in that way. Let me ask you this about your production of Dinner with Friends, Jackson. Yeah. Did you imagine any history between Tom and Karen? Did that scene inform any sense that Tom and Karen may have at one point been together? Hmm. In in our production, it did not. And I wonder if that was to its detriment, because uh, I think there is evidence in the scene for there to have been. I think there Some is history. too. There's an odd um, piece of fact, and it's uh, Gabe and Tom are kind of ribbing each other. Right when Beth shows up, they're making fun of each other, telling each other how they met. And Gabe describes something that Tom used to do when uh, when they were originally meeting, when their friendship was kind of blossoming as young men, to the women that Gabe liked. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, Gabe describes that he would like fall madly in love with women, and then. Tom would go and hit on them. <laughs> so that was kind of the rhythm of, I think, two Cathy's is the joke that they say, is that there were two different Cathy's that he did this with, one with a K and one with a C. So, so, so we that get di- that, which could be just like a surface level, just so, I mean, just to provide interesting flavor to the characters. And it probably teaches us something a little bit about Tom and his uh, maybe persistent wandering eye, perhaps. But we get that in combination with the scene where Karen doesn't rip his hand away. She says, what? She says, what are you doing? But there's some pauses built into the scene. There's some reflection. Tom does it again. He comments on how she looks and she doesn't balk away like, why are you talking about what I look? I kind of get the thought that there might have been something, even something small or even something big between Tom and Karen prior to her relationship with Gabe. I'm not sure about that. There's not a lot more evidence provided. Yeah, the, but the door is totally open to it. I, I think, I think and, and what you do with that dictates a lot of things. First of all, baseline, let's, let's, assume, let's assume that it's all Tom's fault for a second. Um, and well, okay, but it's all but, Tom's fault. It's fine. It is all Tom's <laughs> fault. But let's assume that there was no, uh, there was no relationship between them, and he's just attracted to her uh, in this moment. That that moment informs Karen's reaction to Tom later on when she is so angry at him for having broken up with Beth. That's just the lowest level of if if they're at that low level of context, right? Gabe's kind of too flirty friend who is here at the vineyard and made an unwanted advance at me that I brushed aside. That will justify the reaction of Karen. How much more so would it justify the reaction of Karen if there was an event in college where they were together? Um, and and he, I, I think ultimately, whatever could have happened between Karen and Tom, Karen didn't want him in the end. And, and, and they've moved on from that moment. Right, because and, and she if Gabe. something happened between Karen and Tom, I mean, why did she ultimately choose Gabe? Did she see something in Tom that made her say, ah, this is not the relationship I want to be in? And right. then that provides some substance later on for in the present story of the play, Karen is very, very concerned that 
that she's the one that she and Gabe set up Beth and Tom, that she created this relationship and thereby created all this pain. And there might be some deep rooted sense of, I knew who Tom was. I thought maybe Beth could fix him like I couldn't, but it didn't work. And maybe I'm responsible for not uh, uh, preventing this because I know who Tom is more than just Gabe's friend. But as a right. lover, as a partner. Yeah, I, I, I think that would provide so much more depth to what can be can be read as kind of a knee-jerk reaction from Karen. Or just, just a mean reaction in some cases. But that level of context can create a, a much more justified full arc for both both the actor playing Karen but then also for the audience if you if you if you do the little bit of work to try to insinuate that a little stronger it can justify the perception for the audience as well yeah i want to talk to you Jackson about a note that is given by Donald Margulies at the end of the script he has a kind of postscript note he describes lots of different pieces of the play but here's what he says about uh, in act 2 so act 2 has four scenes in it the flashback scene and then a scene with um, Karen and Beth, where Karen and Beth talk about the fact that Beth is now on to this other relationship and she's going to get married and Karen's worried that she's moving too fast, etc. And then there's a scene between Gabe and Tom where Gabe and Tom reflect on how well everything's going in Tom's relationship and Gabe, they have a, a longer conversation about marriage, about what is the purpose of those kinds of relationships, why stick through the hard times. Gabe reveals that he feels a little bit betrayed by Tom, etc. Then there's the final scene between just Gabe and Karen. Donald Margulies' advice on these two middle scenes, the Karen-Beth scene and the Gabe-Tom scene, is that the Karen-Beth scene should not feel like they're saying goodbye, but the Gabe-Tom scene should feel like they're saying goodbye, like that relationship, that friendship is ending. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of uh, difference between them and and so carefully crafted by Margillies in this play that the notes at the end are really, really quite helpful. Most of the time when something like this happens in a in a script, you're like, oh, okay, that's that's a little overreaching there, playwright. Let the director and the cast work this out. But in this instance, because there's so much subtext, those two scenes really need that flavor. Like and it's because because the words themselves can be quite hurtful. You can play this play as just a barrage for those last two scenes between those two uh, the two women and then the two men in their different scenes where they just attack each other, leave kind of awkwardly, and that's it. But if well, with it, the it, it's interesting too because uh, to me it feels like the Karen Beth scene is far more attacking than the Gabe Tom scene is. Gabe and Tom have a disagreement. They disagree and it causes them both a little bit of distress to learn how the other person views the the you know the commitments that we have when we're in these relationships but I, I don't feel like there's much accusation or pain leveled at the other person in that in that exchange but it's but Donald Margulies says the scene between Gabe and Tom is a farewell scene it should not begin as such but during the course of the exchange it dawns on Gabe that the friendship is irre- irretrievable whereas what he says about the Karen Beth exchanges, they will probably remain friendly, but will never be the intimates they once were. Beth's attack on Karen should be liberating more than cruel. So it's interesting that, you know, this Karen Beth scene is a scene where Beth unloads on Karen. You never did this. You always wanted me to fail because it makes you feel good. You did da 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 And his advice is, but that's not the end of that friendship. 
But when Gabe and Tom say, well, I think this, I think this, we disagree, there's some tension, but not as much, um, I don't know, there's not as much offense done. Does that hmm. make sense? Yeah, it's not as uh, not as uh, pointed, I guess. It's not a character attack on on each other. I th- I think what it is though is it's an I- an ideals attack. Gabe sees Tom attacking his ideals and moving away from what he thought the promise of their friendship was. He kind of says that we we may not have had we we shared a vow it may not have been a marriage vow but we had a vow we were going to get old and fat together cry at our kids weddings and die friends <laughs> as couples and and that 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 life plan that he had was tied up in tom this friend that he had from early college and and so 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 in that way the attack is is a much more kind of subtle, and I'll use insidious again, an insidious attack on on a way of life. It makes Gabe feel stupid, and and he he has to grapple with with that and how Tom has now made him feel, and he can feel himself. He says in the next scene he could feel himself pulling back, could see him receding from view, getting smaller and smaller, and he realized that he didn't love him anymore. Yeah, I, I wonder too. If some of what the playwright is saying in providing these extra notes to help uh, illuminate some of the subtext of these scenes, I wonder if some of what he says is that it's important to have the ability to say to your friends, you were wrong, you hurt me. You know, that's Mm. what Beth finally has the ability to do in her friendship with Karen in this scene is say – Look, you're you're wrong that you said it that you think that it's your fault that our relationship fell apart. You're wrong about that, but you're not wrong in that there's been pressure from you that you that I don't feel like you support me. She's open about not just the, the fact that they disagree on something, but about what she's felt and what she needs back from Karen. The accusation then might become healthy. In fact, the playwright says it's supposed to be liberating. Whereas between Gabe and Tom, and Gabe and Tom are both characters that are accused of not being very good at talking about what they <laughs> truly feel, yeah. they come together and they end up having sort of a, a philosophical level discussion that only very briefly touches the sense of, you know, Gabe doesn't ever say to Tom, look, you were wrong, man. You shouldn't have done this. And in fact, in Act 1, at one point Tom says, are you questioning my decision? <laughs> and Gabe yeah. backs down totally. He's cowed into saying, no, of course I'm not. Right, I'm and not questioning your he decision. Men, I mean, he, yes, of course he is. <laughs> They're best friends and Tom is leaving his wife out of the blue. Of course he's questioning that decision. That's what a friendship is. Right. But Gabe and Tom's friendship seems to not be able to take that step of being pointed with the other person in a way that says, you were wrong. I don't know why you were wrong. And it hurts me that you were wrong. They have a harder time bringing that to the forefront of their relationship. And so maybe some of what the playwright says is if that if that's what your friendship is built on and you, you can't overcome that hump, then when things like this happen, the friendship is going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, and it's painful to watch Gabe try because I think Gabe does try in that in that third scene of Act Two. He winds up telling this kind of long arcing story that he kind of tries to, to – 
to story tell his feelings about this <laughs> with with some with uh, the way that his he tells a story about how his kids play with their toys and without appreciating it for a minute they knock it all over and and that's his that's kind of his in terms of the weight of the scene his last push to try to get Tom to appreciate where he's from and and Tom is just <laughs> Tom is not hearing him in in kind of a flip um, from what Tom's desire always is uh, Tom does not hear. Uh, Gabe's kind of request to him in that in that scene. Yeah, he he refuses to hear it, and and that's probably one of the reasons why I think Tom comes off so badly is he just comes off as the just biggest stinking hypocrite of the whole. I mean, <laughs> of the four, what yeah. a stinker! Oh, he's yeah. just constantly begging people to hear him out and hear his point of view, and. We never will do that to anybody else. I mean, right. <laughs> that, you know, right in that scene with Gabe and Tom, it starts with Tom going like, oh, is Karen still mad at me? And Gabe is kind of like, yes. <laughs> y- yeah. <laughs> and, and Tom has the audacity to say, wow, she can hold a grudge, huh? It's like, talk about not hearing somebody. <laughs> yeah. It's been like two months, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and even even earlier on, too, the scene with him and Beth is just a masterwork of people not hearing each other and the play and the script writing that out for you. Um, the, the, the amount of continuous lines in that scene is incredible, where one character will just say a you know four lines all interspersed with the other character saying four lines and neither of them actually answering what the other one is saying just talking right past each other and it just builds to such beautiful crescendos and that's just so indicative of how tom treats the people around him continuously interrupting and carrying over what they're saying so in the last few minutes of our time let's talk about this final image of the play yeah i find it to be so so interesting So in order to do that, let me just quick set it up. So in the flashback scene, we get this this kind of – we learn about this kind of fun pattern that uh, Gabe and Karen have where he'll be like, oh, it's time to scare you. Yep, I'm going to scare you. And she'll say, no, no, don't scare me. Don't scare me. Sorry, nothing I can do. And the playwright's very clear that it needs to be played really straight with kind of a smirk and there's going to be a big pause and he goes, boo, and scares her. Um, and we learn that in the flashback scene, and it's brought back in this final scene. Gabe and Karen have had a, a really touching, beautiful, intimate uh, conversation about being worried about what this means, you know, what all the reflecting on watching their friends' relationships fall apart, but then also what it means that they're also both so happy after the relationship falls apart. Karen reveals a dream that she had, and then Karen asks this question. This is the final question before we just move into that scaring beat again. They just go into that pattern of, of, of Gabe playing the scaring game. She asks, how do we not get lost? How do we not get lost? The stage directions say, Gabe shakes his head. He takes her hand. They're both frightened. Silence. He begins to play their intimate game from long ago. And then they go into this pattern. Uh-oh, time to scare you. I'm going to scare you. Nope, I'm going to do it. I'm going to scare you. Mm-hmm. And notably, the, the dream that she has is this dream about the young, their younger selves watching their older selves. And and that's that's kind of the fear is how do we not get lost? How do we not lose what we had before 
as we're, we're, we're progressing and living. And Gabe's and response... In the routine of life, how do we not lose it? That, that conversation kind of ends with them saying, well, some of this stuff just happens when you got get caught up in playing the bills and picking up your kids and, and work and all this other stuff. Some of, some of it just happens. And she says, how do we not get lost? How do we not lose our love, our passion, our abandon, is the word that they use in all of that. She says that, mm-hmm. and then... Yeah, and then Gabe's response is to play this game that they have history with that is from that time. And it's and it's it's touching. It, it, it receives a note from Mergillies in that same section that we talked about before where he explains how things should feel, basically. And and this one should feel it's it's not quite as playful. It's like almost a little sad, but also like hopeful somehow. And and this scene. It's it's a remarkably hard scene to pull off. <laughs> I think I think the my my props to my castmates who pulled this scene off because I think they did it. But it's a hard thing to pull off. This especially the way that this game is phrased with like Gabe Gabe poking at her and the game is that she says no, please don't. Like that is it's a it's a hard thing to pull off at the end of this. But when it when it happens when it gets pulled off, you get this this uh restoration of play between them and and that that little beat that little acceptance of the game and that I will play this game with you even though this doesn't feel like the right thing to do right now but when it happens they come back together again we end the play with them kind of holding each other after Gabe scares her uh quote unquote scares her and uh yeah that's 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 where we're left Earlier in the play, in the scene between Gabe and Tom, Tom is sort of kind of turning it back on Gabe and saying, well, you're going to have this happen too. Are you sure you're happy in your marriage? And, and Gabe says, I cling to Karen. That's the phrase he uses. I cling to Karen. And I love that he says that because then in this final image, we get this picture of the two of them clinging to each other. That, 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 that description is borne out in the physicality of, of what they accomplish. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a neat bow. It's not a ribbon. There's still lots of questions. You know, we don't know for sure that they're going to be okay. We just know that they're together in this moment. And 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 whatever happens next, they're going to try to do it together. Yeah, it's it's very it's a I think it's a very similar tonal ending to something like Rabbit Hole, but yeah. perhaps even more. Uh, it might be even more warm of an an ending where she says, how do we not get lost? And I think he does answer her question, much as you described, by bringing back this pattern of abandon and play that they had. And some of what maybe he's saying is we just have to do it. We have to do it even when we don't want to. We have to build in these patterns of abandon and play into the rest of the routines of our life. I think that's all the time we have for this play. This this play, uh, I'm so glad we got the chance to talk about it. This play has so many really great themes. We were talking before about how difficult it is sometimes to do these kind of small cast plays that have a very you know plot driven uh, uh, structure to them, but to to you know to talk about things and not just a synopsis style. But this play especially proves that there are such deep themes in these plays to be sussed out. To 
to be brought to the front. And I think I'm just so glad that we got to talk about it. I know that there are more of you out there who have been in this play, who have done scenes from this play. It's a great play for scenes if you're doing acting scenes. So if you have read it, been in it, been a part of this play, we would love to continue having this conversation with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the usernames are at NoScriptPodcast on those platforms. We also have an email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. If you've liked this episode or some of our other episodes, please share it on your social media. Please tell us, tell others about it. Don't tell us about it. We know about it. Tell (laughs) others about it. Um, That's a really big thing that you can do to help us out. There's a community of people that love scripts, and we hope to keep building that community as we go. You can find this podcast on Podbeam, where it's hosted on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. There's a link to the new episode posted every Monday on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as it comes out. Yeah, yeah. So get excited for Magic Month. Read Midsummer's Night's Dream. But until then, we'll be back next week with another play on Monday. And when we do, I will still be Jackson Nikolai. <laughs> and I will still be Jacob Mann Christensen. I am not planning any major changes to my legal <laughs> name or status before then. <laughs> so we'll see you next time. <laughs>